If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. <laughs> Robert England here, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger. And you should be listening to Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Don't go out there. Don't answer the door. Don't go near Elm Street. Don't look out the window. That's what Wes Craven did. And you know who he saw? Freddy Krueger. Check out Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome to prime time, bitch! <laughs> In a world where zombies, ghosts, serial killers, and vampires all exist, it's Nico, Brian, and Mike, and they are all that stand between you and the films that could end the world. Welcome to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Review Podcast. Just want to thank everyone who's been listening. And uh, really excited about the guests we have on tonight, and I'm just going to jump right into it. Robert England began his career starring in the 1973 period Southern film Buster and Billy and worked through the 1970s in film and television. In 1984, he was cast as Willie in the miniseries and weekly TV show V and landed the role of Freddy Krueger in Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. After more than 75 films, four TV series, and numerous episodic guest star roles, England is now directing as well as acting. The veteran character actor is exploring the world of reality TV and internet programming and loves doing edgy voiceovers for games and animation. You can find him now as the host of True Terror every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on the Travel Channel. Mr. England, an immense thank you for joining us. Obviously, this is a huge pleasure for all of us here on the Don't Go Out There podcast. How are you today? I'm doing all right. You guys hanging in there? Yes, yes sir. sir. In these perilous times? Yeah, weird times, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, I guess I've got the honors going first. No there nerves, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, right now, you know, like, like Nico said, you can find you on the Travel Channel's newest series, True Terror, with Robert England. And you scour news reports of yesteryear to bring viewers twisted tales ripped straight from the headlines of newspapers past. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think what attracted me to it is, you know, uh, a lot of our stories have become local urban legends. And uh, some of them have been disproved. We were uh, more naive 100 years ago. We were less educated. You know, medicine, science wasn't as advanced. But what I like is that historical hindsight, that distance, it, it gives you kind of a, an insight into kind of like what we bought into, what we believed, how superstitious we might have been, or just how open we were uh, in, in the American psyche to this dark stuff, you know, that was put in newspapers. And I think that the fact that we've sourced everything from a newspaper, uh, it, it gives it that kind of historical distance. And I don't want to say credibility, but it just helps us kind of understand where these stories and these legends came from. Now, some of them are out now true. Right. Uh, you know, we did a buried alive one about the uh, smallpox epidemic in uh, in New Orleans. <laughs> Sound familiar? And uh, <laughs> we, uh, we 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 did one tonight. There's one tonight that's that's really strange, 
and I don't want to be a spoiler alert about it, but uh, if you ever saw the old Hitchcock Psycho, yes. you know Anthony yeah. Perkins. Absolutely. Uh, nudge, nudge, <laughs> wink, wink. I will say no more, but it's about a guy who uh, preserves his precious love of his life. Oh, boy. <laughs> and these, the, those are the true ones. But even even given that, I love the idea that, like, uh, for instance, we I, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not a Bigfoot guy, but uh, it, it's interesting to know that a hundred years before they made the cheesy Bigfoot movies, a guy running around in a gorilla suit in The Legend of Boggy Creek or something on 16 millimeter film and sold it to the drive in movies. Teddy Roosevelt, a president of the United States of America on a hunting expedition in Montana, sourced to newspapers uh, a, a Sasquatch sighting. So I, I do, that's the kind of stuff we're finding. You know, I talked to a, another podcast earlier, and one of the guys there had just found a newspaper article like over 100 years old about the Amityville house. So oh. that's like 100 years wow. ago. What's the movie is like 1970s, right? So this is like, you know, 70 years before that. There was already something going on on that piece of dirt. And I, I just love the fact that some of these urban legends really came from a source. It's a kind of an Americana. It's a kind of dark underbelly of, the, uh, of America. It kind of shows us uh, how we've always been kind of attracted to the dark side. Absolutely. And and um, if you could tell us uh, real quick, how are uh, how are you approached to do this new show? Like who approached you? To, uh, how are you approached to do this well, new show? You know, Did you I approach tap, them or? You know, uh, one of the great happy accidents of my career, you guys, is having done a big uh, miniseries that was a number one hit in America and then doing the first couple of nightmares really mm. close to each other. I became an international actor almost overnight. This is nothing they teach you in school. You'd never know. You might have a little car show on the air from your hometown, and they're watching it in Paris or Germany now on a podcast, and you might be a bigger celebrity there than you are here. Well, I became an overnight international actor because of Freddy Krueger and because of my work on a television uh, series called V for Visitors, a big, big hit miniseries and TV series back in 82, 83, 84. And uh, it, it, it opened the door for me to, to, to work abroad, you know, and, and, and to do movies all over the world. And so most people in Hollywood know that I do movies, you know, in Europe and in Canada and Mexico, Latin America, Africa. And so I thought when the Travel Channel approached me, I thought, oh, man. I'm going to Paris. I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to be doing some great show about where to stay. What the coolest B&Bs in Rome and Paris and, and London and, and Hawaii and, and uh, down on the, the Italian Riviera. But they actually wanted me because I bring a lot of baggage now whenever I, I'm just me. Because most people know me as that horror guy, Robert England, the guy that does the horror movies. <laughs> And because I've aged now, I'm getting older. My face is starting to look a little, I don't know, Vincent Price, Max von Sydow from The Exorcist, a little bit like uh, Klaus Kinski. I, I have this certain gravitas to my persona. And they just thought that with, with my baggage and, my, and, the, and the, the way I look now, I would be the perfect host to take you back in time a little bit, you know, right. take you back in time to, to discover some of the sources of some of these strange legends and myths and, uh, 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 you know, these stories, this Americana that's kind of dark and nasty. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned Freddy Krueger and we promise we're not going to go too much into it. You're probably, you're probably Freddied out, but, <laughs> but we are a horror podcast and we'd be remiss not to bring it up at least slightly. Um, but you've you've obviously done a ton of other films and TV shows besides Nightmare on Elm Street. How does it feel to know as an actor and director that your legacy is so kind of tightly interwoven with that that character in that franchise? Well, you know, you got you got to make peace with it. I know that right. when I die, my obituary is going to go. You know, Freddy Krueger is going to be the first thing in my in the obituary column. Right. Uh, 
And I'm fine with that. I've made peace with that. You don't, I, no one sets out to be a famous cop actor or a famous <laughs> lawyer actor or right. a famous doctor actor. Right. You know, uh, but it happens to a lot of us as actors. It's something that happens. And I had done 10 years of playing best friends and buddies and sidekicks. I worked with Jan Michael Vincent and I worked, you know, when he was the biggest star in the seventies, Burt Reynolds and, and uh, Jeff Bridges when he was a young actor. And I worked with Sally Fields, Susan Sarandon before the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I worked with Susan. I even had a, a little semi nude scene with her. And, uh, uh, you know, Henry, I got to work with the great Henry Fonda and Hal Holbrook. Right. I worked with all these people in the 70s, but I was always playing the buddy, the best friend, the sidekick. Right. Now, right. back in the in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, even into the early 60s, the best friend and the sidekick could be older guys. In the old Westerns, it was always some old guy was the best mm -hmm. friend of John Wayne or Jimmy right, Stewart. Right. You know, uh, uh, they were all, all these guys, you know, wonderful character actors like Ward Bond and uh, and and Walter Brennan. And but those parts started to change in the late 60s, early 70s. And you didn't have they didn't you didn't have old old buddies anymore. Right. It was you had young buddies or or or, or you had younger sidekicks. I think it started right around the time of Dirty Harry. You know, they gave him like a younger sidekick. You always get the rookie now. It's <laughs> always assigned to you. The rookie yep. cop or the rookie doctor or your, your buddy or you got a younger kid that's tagging along doing errands for you. So I would not have transitioned into those. And uh, I was getting older. But the happy accident was I got out of that makeup back in 2005 yes. and my face had aged. And my hairline had gone up an inch and I, my, I had gray in my beard and I had creases in my face. And I looked like a little bit like the guy from The Exorcist. I look a little bit like Vincent right. Price and a little bit like Klaus Kinski. So I fit right into the old doctor and the old right. psychiatrist and the old priest and the old poacher, you know, and, <laughs> and I started getting all those parts and it was a nice fit. So I just kept real loyal to the uh to the horror genre and i still go overseas i did a movie last year i starred in a movie with a wonderful director last year in uh in in madrid i don't know if you saw there was a real fun uh grindhouse cheap thrill movie last summer called crawl oh yeah a lot of fun really yeah. fun. that was shot in romania and that's my buddy, Alexander Aja. Great okay. director. He's done some really good horror movies. That's Alexander's great. a terrific director. He did Horns with Daniel Radcliffe. Yep. But uh, he's just a great, great guy. And uh, uh, I, I got to go work for him. And uh, that's because of Freddy. All of that. All of those movies. And I've done maybe 14 or 15 movies now in Europe. That whole part of my career is just because I stayed loyal to the genre, you know, of horror right. movies. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, so walk me through a little bit what a normal day was for makeup process in the chair for Freddy. Well, I'm always the first guy on the set and the last guy to leave. Right. Because right. it takes forever to do the makeup. <laughs> they got to get me. They got to get it right. They got to touch me up all day. And then at night, they once they get me in that crap, they're not going to let me out of it because they know that it takes so long to put it on. And then I go into overtime anyway. And they're always right. paying me overtime because my day, I don't think I've even before I did Freddy, you know, when you the one thing reason actors make so much money is because we work like 15, 16 hour days. There's no right. such thing as an eight hour day. Um, and and so my day would start listening to heavy metal music from my one of my my makeup men they all seem to like heavy metal and then i would get to pick a, an early morning talk show and uh we'd, we'd segue into that and there they put the pieces on originally i think it was 14 pieces maybe maybe uh, maybe a little more and then they got it down uh i think they got it down to 11 11 or 10 pieces but they have to put it together it's like a, a jigsaw puzzle right right 
and they put it together on me and then they have to seam it and then they have to color the seams the the pieces are pre-colored but then they do the get they get the air the airbrush out they do the airbrushing and they color the seams and then they have to do they have to add to it enhance it and then they you know if i'm wearing contacts for a sequence they put the contacts in i can't do it because i've got makeup on my hands and i can't touch anything around my eyes because that's makeup so that would get the make the the contacts dirty then they got to put the teeth in and then it goes all the way down onto my chest and the neck part's the hardest part to do they got to get it up under my ears and it all these different pieces the ears are separate the nose the chin the brows and then they they fit it together so that's a long grueling thing and while it's drawing it's that colostomy bag glue medical adhesive and that's you know I, you know i've got that all over me so that has to stop that has to stop itching but once that stops itching the foam latex pieces are so porous and light they don't really bother me now i pretend like they do i pretend like it's hell underneath that. <laughs> because that way they pamper me more you know yeah, yeah i don't blame you take better care of me but uh, that's the rough part. Then I do then I do a day's worth of work and then they got to take it off. Now, we made mistakes throughout. We had to modify the makeup. Uh, I, I used to try to take the makeup off too fast and my eyes would swell shut or I'd get I'd get these, uh, welts on my skin on, on Nightmare uh, on Freddy on Freddy versus Jason. I did a lot of uh, water stuff and I did a lot of underwater stuff and they were afraid I was going to leak like an old condom. So they double glued me. They double glued me, and we couldn't get that makeup off. And we oh, scrubbed geez. and scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. And my skin was raw, and I still had another couple of days to work in the regular Freddie makeup before uh, before I had a break. But finally, I made it to the Friday, and I had a week off, and I just you know got in a seaplane and went up to some little hippie town in Vancouver and. And uh, sat in a hot tub, you know, and waited for my face to heal. But, yeah, we we made mistakes during the run. You know, I I'd, I'd I remember once I got – I walked through a flaming arbor. I think it might have been part two. And uh, it melted the ear and the side of the makeup <laughs> to the side of my head. I didn't know that because it melted from the wow. inside. Wow. I, five takes my makeup man got his union card that day so i let him go off and, and do a piece of acting so he could get his his union card because he had some dialogue and i said oh hell i can walk through the the flaming arch that's no big deal well one time isn't bad you do it five times and it gets hot in there and i've got the makeup on anyway so we took them all night to get that crap out of my ear the, the <laughs> latex literally melted and ran down into my ear canal we had to like get down there and poke and scrape that out that was no fun but uh for the most part it was pretty easy i picked my nose once with a freddy claw and you know your face bleeds <laughs> you get in a fight you get in a fight you know you bleed more if somebody hits you in the face or you know if you're working in the yard and you get a thorn scratches your face you know you bleed like a pig because we have so many capillaries in our face right. and i I get dust up my nose because they put KY jelly all over me so that my makeup catches the light. But the dust on the soundstage gets in my nose and gets around my eyes. So I'm always like wiping my eyes and picking at my nose because it's I can feel that dust in there accumulating from the dirty soundstage. And I went up there once to wipe some dust. It felt like I had a cobweb in my nose and I must have cut through the latex with the tip of my Freddy glove. And about 14 hours later, they took the makeup off me and the whole that whole part of the mask, the nose up to underneath my eyes and out to my cheekbones was filled with dried blood. I'd been wow. under there for hours. Yeah, that was pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously your uh, long horror lineage, um, you had a couple of stints with uh, arguably, well, not arguably to me. I mean, he was to me the greatest horror director of all time in Wes Craven. Um how was it working with him? I mean, how did you meet and your relationship develop over the years? Well, I met Wes on a just a traditional, typical audition. And back then, we sort of thought of Wes as kind of a David Lynch guy. You know, right. I remember I remember watching uh, a loop in a new wave bar. Remember the new wave skinny ties and big hair? And I was at some new wave bar in the early 80s, a little punk rock girl working behind the bar that I had a crush on. 
and they had these uh, monitors on either end of the barn. They would run in one monitor. It was a continuous loop of scenes from Eraserhead by David Lynch. And in the other one, there were scenes from Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left by, by Wes Craven. But it was in black and white. It was like an old black and white copy, video copy. But I watched that. So we were kind of, I was in at least in my mind's eye, kind of pairing Wes up as this sort of dark, you know, Rasputin, uh, David Lynch guy. I thought he probably wore all black, had long <laughs> black hair, you know, and looked like a wizard or something. And, uh, but he was, I really thought of him as an artist, although a dark one. And, and we, and I was curious to see what he was like. So I just went on a traditional interview. I liked the script and Wes just sat there and gave me, uh, his vision of how the movie was going to be. And he's so smart and so well-spoken, so articulate and poetic that he just had me hooked. And at some point I knew to keep my mouth shut <clears throat> and I just played <laughs> kind of staring games with him. And before the interview, I was 168 pounds of solid muscle. I'm an old surfer and I had long blonde curly hair. I looked like William Cat. Oh, and, wow from the great American hero, <laughs> Terry. Right. And uh, I didn't have a beard then. I was all tan. And uh, so what I did was I, I, I opened up the hood of my car, an old Datsun 2000 sports car, and uh, you know, a, little, a little roadster. And I got some grease out on the dipstick, and I greased my hair back. And I have really fine, thin hair. And so you, you, it really laid down flat against my skull. And uh, it darkened it a little bit. It didn't look real blonde. And then I took a cigarette butt. My buddy always would leave in cigarette butts in my ashtray. And I knew there was an old trick from the theater where you can take cigarette ash and mix it with your saliva, a little spit, and put it, and it, it makes a real natural shadow on your face for makeup. Uh, we used to do it on our temples or around our eyes to sink our eyes in. So I did that under my eyes to take away a little of my tan, healthy look. I put these circles under my eyes and, and uh, I buttoned my shirt up all the way to the top button. So it looked kind of strange. Right. Uh, and then I went into the interview. So I looked a little different. I wasn't real Robert England, you know, uh, right. happy go lucky actor. And uh, I think between doing that, and playing the scaring games with Wes, I think maybe that's what did the job. But, you know, I have a thin face and, you know, and, and I've got broad shoulders. When you put effects makeup on me, it still looks right. My head looks right in ratio to, to the size of my shoulders. A lot of times, a lot of actors, their heads are, too, are, are kind of big. Uh, it looks good on camera, but it, it doesn't look the right ratio with their shoulders. They can't take that extra size of a makeup affects makeup. It just doesn't look right. The ratio looks wrong. So that might, they were worried about the makeup. That might've been a, a I mean, it could have been as simple as, Hey, this guy's got a skinny face. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's got a thin head. The makeup won't make his head look too big. I mean, it might've been that They'll, I mean, I West said he cast me because I understood. He knew I understood the project, but he might just be a nice. He might've just been being nice. Their casting director, Annette Benson also had seen me audition for every single role and with every single actress in Hollywood for a movie called National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Oh, and I, I thought for sure I was going to be in that. And what happens is I, I auditioned too much. I literally canceled myself out. Oh. I, but all the all the top actresses in town, remember, I think Annie Bates wanted me to audition with her. and A bunch of actresses wanted me to audition with them that were up for it as well. And uh, I didn't get in it. And I think that, that uh, she realized that somehow she'd sort of screwed me out of a part on that by having me up for all the different parts in it instead of just one or two parts. And uh, she was telling Wes how good she thought I was. I think she was in Wes's ear saying, you ought to use this guy, because I think they wanted a big six-foot-four uh, stuntman originally for Freddie. Uh, oh. And uh, I got home, and this is back in the day of answering machines, and there was a message on my answering machine that I got the part, and uh, wow, boom. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So are you finding with this lineage and long career that uh, people who grew up with you as Freddie as their horror icon are now, you know, in writers, directors and are actively seeking you out for projects like this new True Terror show that you're on? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great thing about young directors and writers in Hollywood is um, there, there's people that I who I really touched their lives when they were young. And the great thing I was talking to Lance Hendrickson about this from Alien. Right. Hendrickson. And Lance was saying, uh, you know, that he loves doing movies with these. He does a lot of movies with young, young directors, too, because they they listen to his input. They take his input more. Right. If I was just doing big A, a blockbusters, um, they just want to get you in and out because you cost so much. Right. And they're on such a big schedule. They just kind of they actually sometimes have your whole all your movements blocked out for you by a stand in or they've already had to make the decision because. There's effects going on all around you. Um, you don't get to play as much. But when you when I'm doing uh, a medium or a low budget horror movie or another kind of movie uh, and they've asked for me, which is most of my work now, I really get to put my two cents worth it. I help choose the costume and and maybe I can fix the di- they let me fix the dialogue or listen to my opinion about how a scene should be changed or something like that. And it's it, it's it's a lot more creative. Part of that seniority. But part of it is having the kind of cachet of having done close to 80 movies, you know, and and hundreds and hundreds of hours of TV. You get right. you get some respect, which is nice. Yeah. So, you know, like we said at the top, you've, you've been in over 70 films, which is very impressive. And during during that span, most of them are, are horror films. What is it about the horror genre that appeals to you so much? Well, you know, I. I I loved it as a kid. I was a, a real fanboy, and this is a different time, a different generation than you guys are familiar with. But uh, you know, the end of it you might you might recognize. The end of it would have been when I was a teenager and going to the drive-in movie on dates and stuff. We'd go see the uh, Hammer films with yep. Christopher mm-hmm. Lee and Peter Cushing and mm-hmm. Barbara Steele and Herbert Lom, and uh, uh, so that was sort of the end of it for me. But when I was a little kid, I mean, I was addicted to the. I was a huge Twilight Zone fan. Uh, there was I, I loved we'd, we'd go do sleepovers at your friend's house. You know, you drag your Sears sleeping bag over to your buddy's house and and the parents would go to sleep and, and, and you'd get up and sneak down to the den and put on the late, late show, and <laughs> watch all the horror movies, you know, and then we talk about them. We'd go out and mow lawns and, and take our allowance and go to the Saturday matinees. You know, oh yeah, kids. Right. You know, they were all double bills then, and oh man, I remember seeing Forbidden Planet as a kid. I couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old. I think that it's third grade, and uh, oh, I remember seeing Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea when I was a little kid. That blew my mind. The giant squid, and in in, in Forbidden Planet, I loved the robot, and I loved uh, uh, there was a monster from the ID, which was like an animated outline in lightning of a saber-toothed tiger but that was i mean those were those really rocked my world when i was really young and then later on like maybe a couple years later when i was like nine nine years old or so then we would like then we were finding they they were on the late late show they'd run the old horror movies from universal you know and we started started (laughs) yeah okay yeah so going back to this uh new series for the travel channel i know you can't spoil too much about you know the episodes that haven't aired yet but without giving any of that away do you have a favorite topic or or a story you've covered so far well i mean I, you know i'm trying to they they started to group them uh kind of thematically you know we had one that was all critters you know right. last week i mean it was black panthers in the bayou and and <laughs> it was uh, uh cowboys and and flying flying lizards and um Oh my God! And we had a we had a, a Sasquatch one. So they realized after we because there's 18 actual shows. Right. Uh, that's three per episode, and they kind of realized some of them go together. So I'm kind of uncertain about what's coming up. But in the ones that, <coughs> excuse me, in the nice. ones we've seen already, um, I really love the one about the smallpox epidemic in New Orleans. Right. Sound familiar? I really like that one. Um, it's got a, 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 a real primal fear 
attached to it, which is you know the, the the fear of being buried alive, of suffocation. You know, it it, it goes along with our our primal fears of falling and flying and drowning. And, you know, everybody, it's universal. Everybody in humanity has that, that, that nightmare. Uh, and it manifests itself a lot of ways in your dreams. But this is absolutely one of the, one of the segments that's, that's true. Right. This isn't something we've outgrown or something that deals with superstitions that we had a hundred years ago or religious beliefs or, uh, uh, you know, much in science has disproved it subsequently. It's not that at all. This is actually a fact that they were burying people alive. Right. And part of it was because medical science wasn't as sophisticated and they didn't know it when people were in comas. The other thing actually was there was actual corruption between coroners and between the guys that that, that drove the bodies to the to the cemeteries and the coffin builders and the grave diggers these guys were all getting paid by the head per capita you know on every body they could put underground wow and uh and so there was a lot of that and it happened before it happened at even earlier times wow. in europe in the plague there uh and and, and it just makes you you know it's just that uh, that kind of window that kind of uh, look into what we were like back then and what the kind of things we did and what we believed and, and, and what could happen in, in that situation. And, and, and that episode that the makeup's real good. There's, it's really a good show. Uh, and then I think there's one on tonight that I love, which is uh, uh, again, it's this guy that, uh, you know, his, his true love, here's the spoiler alert, his true love d- dies. And, uh, he preserves her and it's like, it's like Tony, it's like Tony Perkins and his mother right. psycho, oh, wow. you know, but it's true. And I talked to a guy, I talked to a guy in another podcast earlier today, you guys. And he, he was telling me that he'd seen some newspaper articles about that episode that he'd found and he'd found some stuff online and they actually talked about the stuff this guy invented to keep her preserved, like sticking oh, apple, apple cores and apple rinds and and, wow. and and orange rinds inside her to take away the smell and Jeez. to make her cheeks and keep her cheeks in shape and everything. Oh, oh, <laughs> really gross stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's that ep- this that episode is really freaky. You know, they they you know, I was I, you know, I was a little concerned because all our shows are period, you know, they're all 19th century, early 20th century. And it's hard enough to do reenactments. And right. they do that kind of docudrama style anyway. And uh, it, it's a it's a tricky blend of docudrama and reenactment. And uh, and plus, we're dealing with the period thing, but they found it such great locations. They're all out there. I think they're all uh, Richmond, Virginia, south of Richmond, Virginia, and then kind of Maryland. And they found that whole that whole kind of George Washington slept here right. part of the country where all the barns are 300 years old. And they've got the covered bridges and even the fields. I mean, they've got some great exterior stuff where even the fields have those old 200 year old split rail fences around them and the roads are still dirt roads. So they found a real good area. We, we can't really afford to go to the actual place of every single show. Right, so right, sometimes, right. you know, there's an old saying in Hollywood, a rock is a rock is a rock, a tree is a tree is a tree. <laughs> That's right. In Hollywood. <laughs> well, a barn is a barn is a barn. And when you find yourself a half a dozen great two or three, 200 year old barns, you can use them. You can make them into a lot of things. And our guys on my crew there have been scouting around there, found some really great stuff. I'm hoping if we get picked up for, for next season, that like Rod Serling on the old Twilight Zones, you know, in the in the second or third season, you'd actually see him at the end of an episode. The camera would would move away from a, like a merry-go-round carousel horse or it would pull away from a, a pair of crushed uh, old glasses. And then you'd see his feet and the camera would move up and Rod Serling would be there on the set of that episode. And he'd kind of wind it up for you, you know, kind of seal it up for you really nice and give you a, a give you a tag. And I'm hoping maybe they, that when they get some really great, great location, I'm imagining like me walking out of the shadows of an old covered bridge yes. somewhere that was built in the 1800s, you know? Yeah. That's definitely the vibe you get when you're on screen is that old twilight zone. Yeah, that, that feeling that just ties me in more because yep. part of my baggage is I really do like this stuff. I really do like this shit. And right. the other thing is that, you know, our show is like 
you know, in the tradition of, and, 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 and we, we love everybody that loves this old show called, um, uh, it was with, with Robert Stack, Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved yeah. Mysteries, yep. Yeah. So that's sort of our, our template. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I look at that, that's one of the earliest reality shows. And I look at shows like that and they're, they're kind of like, comfort food like i've been like you guys probably have too i've been binging a lot lately absolutely all stuck at home and i've been catching up on stuff you know and i i just watched that uh stephen king one on uh, showtime the outsider and and i'm right. I, i'm watching ozark now but but uh I, sometimes i need a break because i'm juggling all these characters and all these plots in my head you know and i'm three hours or four hours in and i just i just need a break i just need to hit the pause button and make a sandwich and Sometimes I'll just watch something that I call what I call comfort food TV. Absolutely. And I have like, for me, it might be Dateline. It might be a a deadliest catch. You know, you never know what it is. Hell, I even like that crazy show Chopped. I just can't believe they can make a (laughs) no match. You know, what are you going to do with those Maraschino cherries? But um, (laughs) I like those shows. But, But I think our show is one of those great formula tv experiments it's like comfort food television you know we've got a formula we've got our segments you know uh i I reiterate i recap for you a bit to keep you up to speed you know i love that on 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 good cable and good streaming now i love that when they were previously on land and they bring you up to date i i sometimes need that you know right Uh, the plots are complicated these days and i love that kind of formula thing but but with us, it's it's just something where you you know you you can run down and make a sandwich after the first segment. You know, there's room for a commercial, there's room to run down. But you've got that format. And I also like about our show because I was talking to a guy today that did it already with one of our episodes. But he found an episode that he really liked, and he really wants to go to the town where this this particular event happened. And uh, he he got online. And kept Googling and Googling and Googling. And he went down a rabbit hole and found some really bizarre Ooh. stuff about one of our shows. So he's going to he's already got a road trip planned wow. uh, to go there because he's he's heard that there is some really interesting wildlife in that area. Lastly, you are one of the icons of the horror genre. True Terror deals with different true stories of horrifying experiences have any of these scared you? And as an icon of this genre, does Robert England himself have anything that legitimately scares him? Well, I, I told you the two that creep me out the most. Right. And I, I, I think one of them is just because it's downright creepy. That's the one that's on. That's tonight. very creepy. Yeah. Yeah. But the one that the but the buried alive one did that that did scare me because you ta- I tapped into that that primal fear. Right. Robert England. uh when when I was a kid, I went to the the Saturday matinee uh, to see a, a a movie. Kids, I don't, I think it was Old Yeller or something like that. And uh, and and I somehow got there right when they changed over to the grown up movie for the evening. We, they called it the adult movie, but we they didn't mean adult like we use adult today. It was just like <laughs> whatever the, 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 the prime, whatever the movie was at, at at night. Well, it started at four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting there. I've got my 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 uh, you know my good and plenty licorice candy and a big big Coca Cola and I'm sitting there and this movie came on and it was a war movie. Well, I love kids of my generation in the 1950s because we were closer to World War II and our dads, a lot of our dads had been in World War II. Right. We we like war movies and there were a lot of war movies made then. Some of them were really good movies and. Uh, and I, I, I'm sitting there, and it's a war movie, and I think I can take it, right? It's called The Naked and the Dead. It's based on a best-selling book by Norman Mailer, the famous American writer. And in the middle of this movie, you're in the South Pacific on a tropical island, and this GI gets bit by this lime green snake, and he dies this horrible death in cinemascope and technicolor. And pus comes out of his nose and his ears, <laughs> eyes and his mouth and his butt. And he's writhing around and he it freaked me out. Little Robbie England, <laughs> I'm probably nine years old. It freaked me out. And uh, so I was, I've been, I was scared for, about snakes 
that summer, like damaged. I was damaged. I was looking under the bed every night. I was looking between the blankets. I was looking in my closet, in my chest of drawers. Got a little better, but I still, man, every time I was out hiking, you know, I'm an old surfer. Every time I was going to the beach and I was walking down rocks where snakes sun themselves and stuff, I was always nervous about snakes. And then, like every good horror movie actor, sooner or later, oh yeah, you do your killer bee movie or your or your giant alligator movie, <laughs> giant snake movie. Well, yours truly, I've done all three of those. Nice. And I did my giant snake movie. My character was the snake expert. The herpetologist. Oh, they geez. gave me a little baby albino python female. And they put it in a tube sock. And they put it under my arm uh, my in, where it's nice and hot and moist in my armpit. And put a little uh, shoelace up here underneath my costume so you couldn't see it. And I would keep her there. And then I'd take her out just before they set action. And I'd coil her on my hand. And I'd bring my hand up near my face when I was doing my dialogue or something. And I'd pet my little baby girl. And I knew it looked cool. I knew it was a cool prop to have my little baby python. And that's how I got over my fear of snakes. Eight weeks, you know, getting used to that little baby snake. Of course, she's growing all that time. Right. <laughs> By the end, she could really squeeze my fist open if she wanted. And I could feel the power. But it was just, that's what it, I mean, it's the irony cracks me up, you know, that, right, that right. You, know, uh, you know, a movie made me scared of snakes <laughs> and that movie cured me of snakes. And, and, and here I'm supposed to be scary. <laughs> Robert, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're about to wrap up, but I just wanted to read a quote that you had from, uh, you know, I've listened to several interviews you've done, read some articles just to get prepared for this. And this kind of stuck out to me. You said, I've met thousands of fans whose memory of Nightmare on Elm Street is not as a horrible, violent film. They have great fond memories of watching with their moms and dads and brothers and sisters after the whole family went out to a video store and chose a movie to watch on the weekend. They stayed home and sent out for pizza. They have these memories of a family experience. And I just wanted to thank you because in 2003, when I was a 12-year-old boy, my mom, she was a you know big Nightmare on Elm Street fan. And she took me as a 12-year-old boy, my little brother, <laughs> and a classmate to go see Freddy vs. Jason. And I'm a self-admitted mama's boy, um, you know. And every time I'm at home, I get to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street with her, you know, around Halloween time mostly. And she actually just texted me a minute ago and said, good luck. And she said she was watching Criminal Minds, the episode you were on. Ah. Uh, I just, I just want to thank you um, because, like I said, I'm a mama's boy. And I'm going to take that memory of going to see Freddy vs. Jason in the theaters with her because that was my first horror I ever seen in the theater. Uh, I get to take to the grave with me. I binge watch Nightmare on Elm Street together with her, and we still watch it to this day. So I just want to thank you for giving me and my mom something in common. And uh, and I, pre I honestly, I really appreciate everything you've done for the horror genre. And I'm really happy you got this show. Is there anything you'd like to say to that, Mr. England? Well, I, I, I just like to say, you know, I, I probably owe half my career, uh, my, my, uh, especially my, my Freddie and my, my post Freddie career, to really cool moms, <laughs> yeah, like yours, to really cool dads, to really cool stepdads, to really cool Sunday dads that were divorced and got the kids on the weekend. Right. And let mm -hmm. the kids go to the mom and pop video store or or to or to Blockbuster and choose anything they wanted because mom was trying to make them only watch Disney goody goody movies. I mean, how long right. can you live on right. My Little Pony? And and <laughs> and so I I have this this experience now, having done ten years or so of Comic Cons and twenty years or so of film festivals. I have this experience of getting people telling me about these great moments of their dad putting on a fake glove and going out and scratching the window outside Absolutely. the room trying to scare the kids or dad dressing up like Freddy or an older brother trying to terrorize you or a babysitter letting you watch it, you know, and you didn't know what you were getting into or a big sister who tried to scare you and made you watch it or watching your mom and dad watch it and watching them jump. Because you've already tested it and seen it once and you know what the scares are. And then you watch your mom and dad jump and having that fun of watching your mom or dad or your stepdad get scared. And back in the day, see, back in the day, there was controversy about these movies. They were considered too violent and too dark and too scary. 
and I was always getting attacked on, on talk shows and stuff and on radio shows. So I didn't put together, I didn't add it up that half the people that saw these movies didn't necessarily see them in the movie theaters. They saw them at home. Right. And they, if you're at home, you're with your family. You're around your loved ones or your sisters and brothers and stuff. So it becomes this memory of a shared experience with the family, as well as it becomes your introduction to the Nightmare on Elm Street world. And that's just this weird thing to me, but it, that, that on some strange, crazy level, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street films were actually a family experience for a lot of Americans. Yes, sir, absolutely. And uh, honestly, the last 30 minutes or so of Freddy vs. Jason is probably some of my favorite you know, <laughs> cinema and all of horror. I just really enjoy watching two of my favorite icons that I love, you know, on screen, duking it out. Uh, well, that Jason's a puck face, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, see, thank you, Robert. Thank you. <laughs> Tried to tell him. I just want to give your show one more shout out. Again, you can find Robert currently on Travel Channel's newest series, True Terror with Robert England, and it airs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on Travel uh, on the Travel Channel. Robert, we really, 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 really want to thank you for being on the show. This has been yes, absolutely. This has been like a holy grail moment for all of us. We all love your movies, and we all love and respect your character, and we well, wish you the you best so of luck. You know, podcasts are only as good as the questions, and you know, I, I, I answer the same questions a lot, and it's really nice when I get something fresh and I can digress because then the people listening are getting something fresh. So absolutely. thank you for the good questions. Thank you. Yes, sir. And I uh, just want to remind everybody to uh, don't go out there. Hidden away in news reports from America's past lurk tales so frightening that they must be true. Extra, extra, read all about it. What the hell is that? I'm frightened, Emily. <laughs> you people are insane! Don't have to do this! I'm Robert England. Join me on a journey into the dark shadows of our nation's history. Axeman murderer takes his eighth victim. To uncover stories as terrifying as they are real. I've never heard or seen anything like it. It's unnatural. I heard something from inside the coffin. Someone is alive in there! Brace yourself. For true terror.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.